If you've got a Bible, you may want to get one out. My name is Mark. I'm one of the leaders here at Christ Central Church. And uh, some of you who uh, know me uh, from before will know that usually I don't wear these, uh, these goggles to preach. Um, the reason that I'm uh, wearing them is for, because if you don't know, uh, on Monday I got hit uh, with a squash ball direct in the eye. Um, I play squash fairly regularly, and I got hit with uh, direct in the eye, which actually caused me to go temporarily blind in this eye for about four hours. I couldn't see anything. It's kind of scary. And uh, since then, I've lost count of the number of people, inclu including Gail Pilgrim, who's coming down, who have said to me, you know, Mark, you should really wear goggles. Um, so I'm taking the advice to heart. Um, you just never know what's going to happen. Uh, so I'm wearing these goggles. Actually, I've owned these goggles for quite a while. And uh, I used to wear them when I was playing. And uh, they tended to steam up. So I stopped wearing them because uh, I couldn't see the ball, which is kind of ironic. Um, <laughs> don't you think? Don't you think? Um, actually, irony is, um, <laughs> is what we're going to focus on today. There was another reason for doing it. Um, some of his older folk will remember the Alanis Morissette song, Ironic, um, which kind of confused people because her examples in it were not ironic, um, which I guess is ironic as well. Um, but irony, if you're not sure what irony is, irony is when something happens which is the opposite of what you might expect, like a fire station burning down or someone posting a rant on Facebook about the evils of social media. It's kind of ironic. Um, it can be something that happens. It can be uh, using language that actually means the opposite of what you're trying to say. So if I said, it's a lovely day for a picnic after church, that could be taken as ironic. Or you could just think, we're going to make the most of it, and it's going to be a great day. <laughs> Today, we're going to look at the ironies of the cross from our passage that we're looking at in Mark's gospel. So if you've got a Bible, you might want to turn to Mark chapter 15, and we're going to read from verse 16 uh, through to verse 39. And in this passage, we're going to find four examples of irony, either in what's said or in what is happening. So we'll read it, and then we'll look at what those four ironies of the cross are. So Matthew chapter 15. Reading from verse 16, which is uh, the last bit that we did last week as well. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted a, together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and they spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they'd mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. And then they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way from the country. And they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he didn't take it. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. 
Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, so you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama samachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar and put it on a staff and offered it Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Father God, I just pray that you'll help us as we look at this passage, which is so powerful and moving even just to read. Lord, I pray you will open it up to us this morning, that we will see truth from it, we'll be encouraged, we'll be strengthened, we'll be able to say, as the centurion said, surely this is the Son of God. Speak to us this morning through what I preach, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, as I said, we're going to find four ironies in this passage. And after uh, the truths have been revealed uh, behind these ironies, hopefully we will come to agree with the centurion. So the first irony is this. The man who is mocked as king is the king over all. The man who is mocked as king is king over all. For the, f the whole of the first part of the book of Mark, and we've preached through it over the last few years, but the whole of the first part of the book, recounting the ministry of Jesus, the question that keeps on being asked is, who is Jesus? Who is this man? And halfway through in, about in chapter 8, you get the revelation that comes from Peter when Jesus is saying to um, his disciples, well, who do people say I am? And people saying, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. Um, Peter, Peter comes out with, no, 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 you are the Messiah. You are the Christ. The Messiah was the promised one who was to come that the Jews had been waiting for in the line of King David. He was a kingly Messiah. And uh, from this point on, when it's revealed, because Jesus agrees with Peter and he says, yes, this has been revealed to you by God. You are the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. From that point on in the gospel, we have been understanding what kind of Messiah Jesus is, what kind of king Jesus is, because he's very unlike uh, the, a regular kind of king. Um, and that's what people haven't understood. And, uh, and, and people who hear that Jesus is the Messiah, they often don't understand exactly what kind of Messiah, what kind of king Jesus is. So after the trial, when Jesus is condemned to death, 
The soldiers take him out, as we saw last week, and they dress him up in a purple robe. They twist the crown of thorns on his head, and they bow before him, and they mock him, and they say, Hail, King of the Jews. Well, they're not really believing that he is the King of the Jews. They're just mocking him. They're making fun of him. They're saying, this doesn't look like any sort of king that we have seen. Pilate, too, has a sign written over, uh, and which is he gets nailed on the cross that Jesus is on. And the sign just simply says, the king of the Jews. And uh, other gospels tell us that the chief priest said, no, 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 we should change it to this man says he was the king of the Jews. And, and Pilate says, no, 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 what's written is written, the king of the Jews. It's, it's a kind of ironic, it's meant to be ironic in and of itself. Those people are meaning it to be ironic. It, they don't believe Jesus is the king. They don't believe Jesus is the king. The soldiers are laughing and saying, it's pathetic. How can a man in such a pathetic state as you be king? But it's doubly ironic because Jesus actually is the king of the Jews. He is the Messiah that they've been waiting for. The man who is mocked as king is the king. Mark knows that as he's writing it. God knows that. We know that as we read it. Matthew's gospel outlines it right from the start, doesn't it? You get the Magi coming and they visit Jerusalem as Jesus is just a baby, just an infant. And they go to Herod and they say, where is he who is born to be king of the Jews? It's been known Jesus is king of the Jews. And in fact, he's more than king of the Jews. He's king over all. In Matthew 28, at the end of Matthew's gospel, in verse 18, Jesus says to his disciples in in what's become known as the Great Commission, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority. Kings have authority. Kings have authority over the lands which they rule over. But he's saying all authority in heaven And over all the earth has been given to me by the Father. He's been given that authority by God. He's king over everyone who mocks him. He's king over you and me. And one day, every knee will recognize that. Every knee will bow before Jesus the king. Because in the future, Jesus will return in judgment and power. And we see the picture in Revelation, the very last book of the Bible in Revelation chapter 19 talks about Jesus returning with the armies of heaven in power and in glory. And it says, on his robe and on his thigh is written, King of kings and Lord of lords. That's who this Jesus is. And one day the world will see it and one day the world will see him return in power. But for now, that's not what this Jesus looks like. For now, that's not what Jesus looks like to many in society, in the world. They look at Jesus and say, well, it looks a little pathetic. It looks weak. It looks like failure. Well, Jesus didn't come like other kings. Jesus came like a servant. He came in meekness. He rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. He says, if you want to be great, then you have to serve others. And then he models it and he washes his disciples' feet and he acts in that way. But he's king nonetheless. People in power, 
emperors of this world, rulers, presidents, they usually exercise their authority out of some deep sense of wanting to promote themselves. To promote themselves. They want to be number one. They want to have everyone know that they are number one. And often they act and make decisions for that reason. And to try and preserve their authority and to try and keep hold of their power. But Jesus willingly lets go of his authority. He willingly lets go of his power. Paul says in Philippians 2, doesn't he? He said, Jesus didn't count equality with God something to be grasped, something to be taken advantage of. Instead, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and being found in very nature of God. He gave himself to death, even death on a cross. That's what Jesus does because he exercises the authority and the power that he has got for the good of his subjects, for the good of his people. He serves others. He takes the cross. He came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So that's the first irony that we see in this passage. The man who is mocked as king is king over all. The second thing we see is the man who is utterly powerless is all-powerful. In the Roman world, uh, crucifixions used to happen in a public place, and they would often be at some crossroads or somewhere where public uh, could gather, people could gather, and they would watch the crucifixions. It would be a, a, a spectator spot, and the same was happening with Jesus. There were people crowding around and watching. And what would happen at these um, crucifixion sites is they would often have, or they would usually have, the, the, the vertical pole, uh, the vertical piece of wood that people were crucified on, they w that would be in the ground. It's not always as is seen on some of the um, movies or some of the TV shows which depict um, crucifixion. Often they would be there. And, but then the cross piece, the horizontal piece, would be the part of the cross which was carried by the victim. They would, it would be part of the whole humiliation that the person who was going to be crucified had to carry their own cross on the way to the cross. And that's exactly what happened with Jesus. Um, and then they were tied on the cross, on the, on the, on the other cross piece, and, uh, and nailed to it. Now, Jesus is so weak from his beating. He's so weak that he's not able to even carry this chunk of wood on his shoulder. So the soldiers did what was their right to do and what they sometimes did in this situation. They forced a bystander to carry that part of the cross for him. And they got Simon of Cyrene um, to carry the cross. Uh, we don't know much about what happened to Simon after that, although it, it, clearly his children are known by the readers because Mark mentions their names. Otherwise, why would he mention it? Um, so it could well be that Simon, or certainly his children, actually came to faith after this. Um, but Simon didn't volunteer to carry the cross. He was forced to carry the cross for Jesus because Jesus was too weak to carry it for him himself. He, uh, the soldiers then strip him naked. And again, that's how people were crucified. Um, they were crucified naked. And again, it just adds to the humiliation. So the soldiers strip him naked and they divide up his clothes. They're, they're casting lots, kind of a, a bit of like gambling, I guess, in some way. So who's going to get what piece of 
clothing, what item of clothing. So Jesus hangs there on the cross, naked, and just looking like an, like an instrument of shame and brokenness and humiliation. His body was completely broken. Remember, he's been whipped by this whip, which has got pieces of metal weaved into it. So his whole body is just a mess, and everyone's seeing it. And, and there's, there's no chance, it seems, that he's going to get released. He's just hanging there. And people are walking by, and they're shaking their heads at him, and they're saying, ha, you said you were going to destroy the temple. So this is the charge that was put against him. You said you were going to destroy the temple and, and rebuild it in three days. Just look at you now. You don't even have the power to come down off the cross. How, how can you say you're going to do all that? How crazy to imagine that Jesus was saying he could destroy a temple and rebuild it in three days. I mean, it's only fairly recently that buildings have been able to be constructed relatively quickly. All, of all the great cathedrals, for example, in Europe, um, none of the original architects ever saw them completed because it took decades to see the, the work come to completion. And so with the temple in Jerusalem, it was even more difficult. It was an even longer task because there were regulations and laws, Jewish laws, which prevented work being done at the site of the temple. So often what would have had to happen was the, the, these huge stones would be chiseled out and carved out uh, somewhere else and then be transported by animal to the place where it was going to be built. It was a long, long process to see the temple being built. And Jesus apparently is talking about destroying and building a temple in three days. I mean, look at him. He speaks about being so powerful, and yet he hangs there so powerless. So again, people mocking, it's intended to be ironic. But the true irony is that Jesus is demonstrating his power in the weakness of the cross. That's exactly where Jesus demonstrates his power. What had Jesus actually been referring to when he talked about the temple being destroyed and in three days raised again? Well, actually, what he'd been talking about was his own body. In John chapter 2 and verse 19, is where we see Jesus say this. He says, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. And John explains, he says, the temple Jesus was speaking about was his body. You see, the temple in Jerusalem, the temple was the place where a holy God and sinful people met. The temple was the place of sacrifice. The temple was the place of atonement for sin. It was where the high priest would come and people would come and sacrifice animals um, for forgiveness of sin. And that's exactly what the cross was for. Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross pays for our sin. Jesus himself has become the temple. He's become the meeting place between a holy God and a sinful people. That's where the two can meet, in Jesus hanging on the cross. Jesus is the temple. It's in his death and in his resurrection that Jesus meets our greatest need. 
of restoration and forgiveness and where he reconciles us to a holy God because we couldn't do that any other way. So here's what's ironic. By dying on the cross in humiliation and weakness, Jesus is establishing himself as the temple. And he's resurrected, he's raised again in fullness of power three days later. The man who looks utterly powerless is all-powerful. He can do what no one else can do. He can restore a broken, sinful world and humanity to a holy God. We have to hear the words of Jesus for ourselves, too, when he says, if anyone would come after me, they must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me will find it. We're called to take up our cross, too. It's not some kind of trivial thing, taking up your cross. Sometimes people say, oh, I've got this, I've got this really bad tooth. And, uh, you know, I just, it just can't seem to get in. But, you know, we've all got our cross to bear. That's, that's, not, that's not what it is. That's not what taking up our cross is. It's not, some, some, it's not some annoying relative we have to go and visit. It's not even being courageous when we've lost our job or, or, or someone very close to us, a friend or a relative, has, has, has died. What, what taking up our cross means is that we ourselves are under the sentence of death like Jesus was. We've lost all hope of life in this world. There's nothing in this world that here that's going to satisfy us, that's going to fulfill us. We've got to come to the point of realizing that. Nothing. It's when we die to all of that and embrace all that Jesus has done for us that we truly receive everything from God. When we turn away from the empty promises of power and strength and authority in this life, and when we embrace the way that Jesus led us in, when we embrace the humiliation of the cross, when we embrace often the shame of following Jesus, he's going to pour out life to us. He'll pour out abundance and peace and hope. He'll pour his Holy Spirit into our hearts, the power of the Spirit, things we could never have known before if it wasn't for Jesus going before us. Jesus, Jesus led the way, and Paul understands it. Paul understands it in 2 Corinthians 12 when he says, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. When I'm weak, then I'm strong. We have to embrace the same life of weakness and the same humility and look the same way. Look powerless, look shameful, look weak. What's, how's the church saying it's the hope of the world? Just look at them. How is that? When we're weak, and we're strong. We receive the power that comes from God. So the second irony of the cross, the man who's utterly powerless is all powerful. The third irony is this, the man who can't save himself saves others. The man who can't save himself saves others. Jesus gets mocked not just by passers-by, he gets mocked by the chief priests and the elders, he gets mocked by the people on the cross, although one of them, uh, clearly we find in another gospel, changes his mind and sees from a different perspective, but he's getting mocked from all around, and, and the people are saying this, he saved others, but he can't save himself. He saved others, but he can't save himself. Well, what were they meaning by he saved others? 
Well, what they were meaning at the time was, well, he, he, he went around and healed the sick. He delivered people from demonic oppression. He fed the hungry. He even raised Lazarus from the dead. He dramatically helped other people. But now, now when he's on the cross, he can't even save himself from execution. He's not much of a savior, is he? In fact, he's a big disappointment. I'm sure they enjoyed their witty mocking of Jesus to themselves. But what they didn't know, and what Mark, as he writes the gospel, knows, and that's what we know, and what God knew, is that if Jesus is to save others, he really can't save himself. If he's to save others, he can't save himself. Back at the Last Supper, Jesus took the cup and he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my blood of the new covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus had led and lived a sinless life, but he was going to die for the rest of sinful humankind. His blood was poured out for many. He knew that. He knew that in the garden. He knew what his mission was from his father. We'll see later on just how hard that was. But he knew that he had to go to the cross to save others. He couldn't save himself. There was no other way. So the mockers call out, come down from the cross. Come down from the cross and then we'll see that and we'll believe. I wonder what would have happened. I wonder what would have happened in a scenario that that actually took place. You know, like some movie. You go and watch the, the movies and you get the hero and they look as though they've got in some impossible situation. How are they going to break through? It's, lo through? it's looking as though the end is coming. And then right at the end, just as the hero is about to die, something happens. Somehow, he's filled, he or she is filled with power and their arms and their feet turn to steel and they, and they, and they burst from whatever it is that's holding them back and they are victorious. I wonder what would have happened if Jesus had have done that. If suddenly superhuman strength and power from the Holy Spirit filled Jesus, if his, if his arms just ripped out of the wood and he's, he jumped down from the cross and, and he came and he threw aside the, the soldiers gambling for their clothes and he grabbed them and he's like, now see how powerful I am. That's how movies would have it play out. <coughs> now do you believe? And what would they have done? I mean, it would have been pretty remarkable. It would have been pretty dramatic. And they would have believed something. They would have believed that there was some sort of power there. But would they believe in him? Well, what would there be to believe in? Believe in him for what? Because to believe in Jesus means to trust in him as the one who's borne our sin in his body on the cross. To believe in Jesus means to believe that he's taken on the punishment for our sin that we deserved. And he's taken it on himself. And that he's clothed us in his righteousness, his goodness, his holiness, his perfection. It's like he's taken everything that we had and that we would have on us. And he's clothed himself in it. And he said, here, take my goodness and you take that clothing. And that's what we believe in. When we say we believe in Jesus, when we say we put our 
trust in him. Well, what are we trusting in? Well, we're trusting that we can stand before God the Father. We're trusting that we're not ever going to be um, judged for our sin in that way and, and experience the anger of God and the wrath of God and, and the punishment that was due to us. That's what we're trusting in. To believe that his death and resurrection have reconciled us to God. And if Jesus came down from the cross, he wouldn't have done that. He wouldn't have done it. So what would we be trusting in him for? Nothing. We'd be back to trusting in ourselves. We'd be back to trusting in our own goodness. Oh, I think we're okay. I think we've lived a good enough life. I think, I hope, maybe God will be pleased. Our trust is in him. We believe in him. He had to die. He saved others. But he couldn't save himself. The irony is, if he'd saved himself, he wouldn't have saved others. The only way, the only way Jesus could save others is by not saving himself. It wasn't the nails that held Jesus to the cross. It was his resolve absolute resolve that he determined at Gethsemane to do his father's will out of love for him and out of love for us. He said that's the only way. The man who can't save himself saved others. And now our final irony. The man who cries out in despair trusts God. Mark tells us that the sixth hour, some translations will say, it's, it says in the modern NIV, it explains that that's noon. At noon, darkness covers the whole land. And then three hours later, at three in the afternoon, Jesus cries out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, it looks as though Jesus has totally lost his trust in his father. It looks as though he doesn't understand what's going on. It, do it looks as though he didn't expect it to be like this. And maybe he has lost his trust in God. But that doesn't make sense. Because in all of these, this passage, we see that there's always deeper irony. And Mark knows... Mark knows that, in writing it, that Jesus does indeed trust his heavenly Father. We've seen it all the way through the Gospels. And we saw it in Gethsemane. We saw Jesus sweating blood. He knew full well what was coming. He says, is there any way? Take this cup from me. We looked at that when we looked at the passage. We saw what that cup was. That was the cup of the wrath of God, the anger of God poured out, the righteous anger of God poured out against sin. He knew it was coming. He knew he was going to have to drink from that cup so that his disciples could drink from the cup of blessing. It's not a surprise to Jesus when he said, not my will, but your will. He knew why he had to go there. But right now, as he hangs on the cross, Jesus was experiencing, for the first time, separation from his heavenly Father and from the Spirit.
and he was experiencing the wrath of God being poured out. Not for his own sin, but for our sin. It's what we should have had. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21 says, God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us. God made him, who didn't have any sin, to be sin for us. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. That's the exchange that I've just been talking about. At that moment on the cross, Jesus was sin for us. He was completely separated from God, his Father, in whom there is only light and no darkness. He didn't just feel as though he was separated from the Father. He didn't just feel as though he'd been forsaken. He was. He was. I mean, the unity of the Trinity wasn't broken, but Jesus was separated from the Father and the Spirit. And so the physical agony of the cross, the nails and the suffocation and the agony and the slow death was nothing compared to the agony of this wrath and judgment being poured out. It was nothing compared to the agony he was facing, being separated from God. I mean, if one of you said to me at the end of this, at the end of this meeting, you know, I never want to speak to you again, Mark. I never want to see you again. That's, that's going to, that'll affect me. That will trouble me. That will upset me. If Debbie, my wife, says it to me, I'll be more troubled. Or my children say it. That will be much deeper. That will be much harder. The longer and deeper the love, the more, the greater the torment at its loss. We, we see it in, in, in spouses whose husbands or wives pass away when they've been 50 years or more marriage or, or, or any, any time really in parents. And that's where we see it. That's where we get an idea of the deepness, the depth of such agony and such torment. It's a, it's a tiny fraction of it, but it's greater. There's no recovery from it. People who've lost lost spouses, often they never get over it. Jesus had loved the Father who had loved him for all eternity with perfect love. For all eternity, before the creation of the world. The Father, the Son, the Spirit in perfect unity, in perfect relationship, not separated from each other. And now, Jesus is cut off from that love. My God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken so that we would never have to be forsaken. He was forsaken so we would never have to be. When Jesus dies and gives up his spirit, it says the curtain in the temple was torn from in two, from top to bottom. That, that was a curtain in the temple um, behind which only the high priest could go into the holy of holies, the, the presence, the, the, the manifest presence of God. And only once a year could the high priest go behind the curtain and, and he had to go and he had to take a blood sacrifice with him. And even then they'd tie a rope around him in case something happened because no one could go in to go and get him. 
And now the curtain is torn in two at Jesus' death. What does that mean? It means the way is open for anyone, for everyone who trusts in Jesus. We don't need any more sacrifices. We don't need any more high priests. The curtain is torn. Christ's work is done. It is finished. And that means that however lonely and abandoned we feel, and sometimes we do, we do feel that, but however lonely and abandoned we feel, we will never experience the abandonment from God and that torment that Jesus knew. We'll never know that because he endured it for us. And Jesus cried out, I'm forsaken, so that for all eternity we will never have to cry that out. Never. When we suffer, often we're completely in the dark about the reason. We don't understand. We don't understand why we suffer. It might seem senseless. It might seem to have no meaning. And, 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 and often, there's no point even trying to figure it out. It may seem senseless, like Jesus' suffering seems senseless. But, and we might not understand what it does mean. But the cross tells us what it can't mean. It can't mean that God doesn't love you. It can't mean that God has no plan for your life. It can't mean that God has abandoned you. Because Jesus was abandoned and paid for our sins so that God the Father would never abandon you. The cross proves he loves you and that he understands what it means to suffer. It shows that God is working in your life, even when there's no rhyme and reason to what is happening with you. God is working. Jesus' cry on the cross was a quote from Psalm 22. It was the first verse of Psalm 22. Starts with this cry of abandonment, but the psalm doesn't end there. In fact, as we'll see, the psalmist ends up putting his absolute trust in God. And that's true, too, of Jesus. The man who cries out in despair trusts God. As we come to a close, let's just read through Psalm 22 and see where it goes. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, seen as he delights in him. 
You brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you. Even at my mother's breast, from birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb, you've been my God. Don't be far from me, for trouble is near and there's no one to help. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me, roaring lions that tear their prey, open their mouths wide against me. I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart's turned to wax, it's melted within me. My mouth's dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouths of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my people in the assembly. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the sufferings of the afflicted one. He's not hidden his face from him. He has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly before those who fear you. I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. And worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. He has done it. He has done it. Jesus put his trust in God. And we can put our trust in this same God. The four ironies of the cross are the man who's mocked as king is king over all. The man who's utterly powerless is all-powerful. The man who can't save himself saves others. And the man who cries out in despair trusts God. And most people at the time didn't see the irony and the truth behind it, but one did. The centurion soldier who heard Jesus' cry and saw how he died and said, Surely, surely, this man was the Son of God. Do we see it? Do we see it ourselves? Do we see the truth that in Jesus, Jesus in trusting God is king over all, is all powerful, and saves us from our sin? I pray that each of us do. If you've never seen it before today, come, follow him. Take your cross. Die to this life. Receive all that he's got for you. I pray many more do in this generation. Let's pray and the worship band can come back. Father God, Lord, we praise you. We praise you for your goodness towards us. We praise you for your love. It's unfathomable. We 
we see only a glimpse, even this morning, we see only a glimpse of the depth of your love, but oh God, we're so overwhelmed by it. And we want to say, together as your people, we love you, we trust you, we worship you. You are King of kings and Lord of lords.